Hey, it's Kristen. This is Rational in Portland, where we say everything you can't say in Portland. in Portland. In this episode, we're continuing our spotlight on the homeless crisis within neighborhoods in Portland. Today, we're going to spotlight the Lentz neighborhood in Portland, which is in Southeast Portland. My guests on this episode are Todd Littlefield and Juanita Swartwood. They're from the Lentz Neighborhood Livability Association, or the LNLA. The LNLA LA is separate and distinct from the Lentz Neighborhood Association or the LNA. Todd and Juanita will talk more about the distinct nature of their neighborhood nonprofit in a moment, but first I want to give you some context for what their organization is and why it's important. First, let's talk about neighborhood associations and how they fit into Portland city government. As most of you know, the city of Portland has one of the weirdest city government structures in the United States. The city of Portland's website has some interesting historical facts about how neighborhood associations work in the city of Portland. Effectively, these neighborhood associations are governmental bodies. In 1974, the city of Portland created the Bureau, the Office of Neighborhood Associations, because Portland's governmental structure consists of nonpartisan commissioners who represent the entire city, unlike other cities that elect politicians to advocate for the needs of specific neighborhood or geographical boundaries. By creating the Office of Neighborhood Associations, the city was establishing a direct channel for neighborhood associations to engage in city decision-making, determine neighborhood needs, and represent neighborhood interests in land use and development decisions. The Office of Neighborhood Associations is now known as the Office of Community and Civic Life because it is not composed of only the neighborhood associations, but now includes various cultural affinity groups and nonprofits. City codes actually govern what neighborhood associations can and cannot do, and neighborhood associations in the city of Portland have a board which consists of volunteers who are elected officials. Juanita and Todd, my guests on this episode, are part of an organization, the LNLA, that is not a city-sanctioned neighborhood association. They will explain why the city-sanctioned Lentz Neighborhood Association was not meeting their needs and why they and others in the Lentz neighborhood felt compelled to support their neighborhood via a completely different mechanism. The LNLA is a nonprofit that accepts donations and does not receive money or support from the city of Portland, but it does lobby the city and city officials for changes in the neighborhood, and its members are very active in the community. The LNLA is so active and works so hard to be vocal about how the homeless crisis is impacting their neighborhood that the local city of Portland press, particularly the Portland weeklies, 
regularly attend the meetings of the LNLA. Like my last guest, TJ Browning, who was from Laurelhurst, the LNLA is regularly vilified in local media and in the Portland Weeklies. They've been referred to as NIMBYs or Not in My Backyard, which in Portland is an epithet by Willamette Week, one of the Portland Weeklies. If you live somewhere that is not on the West Coast, you might think anyone who chooses to buy a home probably wouldn't want one or rent a home for that matter with the skyrocketing rents and home prices within the city of Portland. That anybody who chooses to buy or rent a home in the city of Portland probably wouldn't want one ensconced in homeless encampments. But in Portland, the phrase NIMBY is pejorative and it implies that people who don't want their homes surrounded by encampments would rather see those encampments in someone else's neighborhood. But if you listen to Todd and Juanita long enough, I don't think that you will conclude that. They don't think that there should be homeless encampments in any neighborhood. They don't think that there should be homeless encampments at all. They think that homeless encampments are dangerous for people in homes as well as homeless people. And given the crime and the squalor that they say they've witnessed, I think a lot of people would agree with them. When I was growing up in the 80s, I had a subscription to a nature magazine called Ranger Rick. It's still around. My kids have a subscription now. Ranger Rick was for little budding environmentalists, and it talked about people who didn't want necessary things that would allegedly save the environment near them that could be disruptive, like, say, recycling plants. Now, anybody who's read the article, Recycling is Garbage, in New York Times Magazine knows why I used the word allegedly in that sentence. But in the 80s, there was a consensus that recycling was one of the things that was going to save the planet from environmental destruction. In fact, in Portland, I think it probably still is. That aside, imagine my surprise when I read in the Macmillan Dictionary that the term NIMBY was actually coined in 1980 by the late Nicholas Ridley, a British conservative politician who was Secretary of State for the Environment. He used the phrase NIMBY to pejoratively describe opponents of building projects or infrastructure developments. Specifically, he was deriding homeowners fighting encroaching development. Later, the term NIMBY was used by environmentalists to, say, deride people who didn't mind creating pollution as long as they didn't have to breathe it. In that context, it makes sense, but it's now used for people like my guests in this episode who don't think homeless encampments should exist at all. And I challenge people who would use the term NIMBY to describe people like Todd and Juanita. Are homeless encampments necessary? Are Todd and Juanita like the example I've just given of somebody who creates pollution but doesn't want to breathe it, creating homeless encampments. I don't think NIMBY is the right term for this situation, but most of us don't think it through because the dominant voices in Portland have used this term for so long to describe people who don't think that homeless encampments should exist. I think that so-called houseless advocates are incorrectly using the term NIMBY because it implies that homeless encampments must exist or are a necessity of life. The idea that people who don't want to raise families around needles and garbage and squalor or NIMBYs is a ridiculous fiction that we seem to have accepted as a cultural fact 
in the city of Portland. The idea that anyone, including the homeless people themselves, particularly if they were functional and had the help that they need to get out of their substance abuse or their mental illnesses would want to live in filth and biohazards is patently absurd. And the idea that these are functional people willingly living in filth and biohazards is also patently absurd. These are people whose brains are hijacked by mental illness and drugs. Will we always have mentally ill people and people struggling with substance abuse in our society? Yes, of course. And does that mean that we'll have to debate about where those people should reside and whether we should put mental hospitals within neighborhoods, whether we should put rehabilitation facilities and addiction treatment facilities within neighborhoods? Yeah, I think it does mean that. I think it means we have to debate those kind of things. But does it mean that we will always have encampments or that we must have homeless encampments, a.k.a. open-air drug markets and open-air chop shops and criminal enterprises operating? No, I don't think so. Anybody who has lived in the city of Portland prior to 2016 will tell you that although we've always had our fair share of homeless people, the citywide encampments really began when then-Mayor Charlie Hales announced that he was going to allow homeless people to set up camp undisturbed. Many of these homeowners and home renters have either invested all their assets or all their available liquid cash, if you're a renter, for instance, in extremely expensive Portland housing. And these people are doing whatever they can to protect their biggest asset or their probably their biggest cost. And housing in the United States, particularly purchased housing, is generally a family's primary investment vehicle. Everybody, including homeless people, deserve to reside in safe places. And encampments are not safe for anyone, least of all the homeless people within them. So in 2016, After then, Mayor Hales announced that homeless people could go ahead and sleep in the streets undisturbed. Many of them decided to bed down along what is known as the Springwater Corridor, which was a popular biking trail on the east side of Portland. Portland Portland.gov describes the Springwater Corridor as a 21-mile multi-use trail for bikers, walkers, hikers, wheelchairs, strollers, etc., filled with wildlife habitats featuring animals like mountain lions, coyote, deer, bats, various birds, etc. native plants. In 2016, after Mayor Hales's quote-unquote safe sleep policy, the section of the Springwater Corridor that ran through the Lentz neighborhood, the neighborhood where my guests on this episode are from, became known as the Avenue of Terror. A story from Coin News on January 15, 2016, explains that cyclists who used the trail to commute to work downtown stopped because it was not safe. Commuters reported assaults, property theft, human feces, trash, various other things. At one point, the estimate in 2016 is that there were between 800 to 1,000 homeless people in Lentz after then-Mayor Hales' safe sleep policy. Right along the Springwater Corridor. That's according to KATU News, which is an ABC affiliate, and that was on July 14th, 2016. In fact, 
That KATU news article is entitled, The Springwater Corridor May Be Home to the Largest Homeless Camp in the U.S. The article acknowledges that when Mayor Hales legalized tent camping on city property overnight, it brought in dozens of campers to the Springwater Corridor in the Lentz neighborhood in an influx in violent crime. On August 27, 2018, KGW News did a story about a homeless woman along the Springwater Corridor who tried to kidnap a six-year-old in a park near the Springwater Trail and followed her after she fled inside of her home. The homeless woman followed this little girl inside of her apartment where her grandmother was and said to the grandmother, I'm taking your purse and I'm taking the little girl. And apparently the girl's mother intervened, according to the article, and punched the homeless woman who was eventually arrested. In June of 2021, a homeless man who was living on the Springwater Trail was shot by another homeless person, according to the Oregonian, uh, and that was printed December 1st, 2021. There have been shootings in the Lentz neighborhood. Many shootings. A quick Google search pulls up a startlingly enormous amount of results, suggesting that these shootings are routine. One example is a 30-year-old man who, according to Coin News, on August 23rd, 2021, was shot in the parking lot of a convenience store. He had a six-year-old who survived him. According to Coin News on May 16th, 2022, a man opened fire in the Lentz neighborhood and was arrested and charged with murder, assault, unlawful use of a weapon, and unlawful possession of a firearm. Many people remember Robert Delgado, a homeless, mentally ill man who was reportedly pointing a gun in Lentz Park in 2021, and according to CNN on April 17th, 2021, was shot by police after what police said were non-lethal attempts to subdue him. Unfortunately, Delgado was carrying a gun replica, not an actual gun, and was pointing it at the police. A grand jury did not indict the police officer in that case. These are just some of the examples of the chaos and trauma that the people living in the Lentz neighborhood and the homeless people ensconced in the Lentz neighborhood are dealing with. It is heartbreaking for everybody involved. You'll hear my guests Todd and Juanita talk about David and Char. David and Char are on the board of the LNLA, so the Lentz Neighborhood Livability Association. And they, according to Juanita and Todd, Dave and Char are sort of uh, running things and motivating people and in charge of general policy. I haven't spoken with David, but I have traded emails with Char. She seems like a wonderful person. She seems like a person who really cares about the homeless in her community, as well as the way the homeless people are affecting the housed people, the homeowners and the renters alike in her community. So she's a very compassionate person. She's a very smart person and she's dedicated to not only helping homeless people, but also to helping her neighbors and to assisting her community. So you will hear a lot from Todd and Juanita about Char and David, and they're on the LNLA, the Lentz Neighborhood Livability Association board. Stay tuned and hear more from my guests in the Lentz Neighborhood who are part of the LNLA, Todd and Juanita. We are here on Rational in Portland, and I have 
Juanita Swartwood and Todd Littlefield with me. They both live in Lentz, and um, they are both living in a neighborhood. Many of you may or may not know that Lentz is dealing with a large part of the homelessness crisis in Portland, Oregon, the neighborhood of Lentz. For people who don't know, where is Lentz located? I think Lentz goes from 82nd. I'm not sure how far east it goes from there, and I think it goes from probably you know, the South Portland uh, property line uh, close to Flavel, and I think it probably goes to Powell, is what I'm guessing for Lentz neighborhood. And we, we talked a little bit about how 205 um, was supposed to go where Cesar Chavez currently is, the right. Cesar Chavez Street, which is, what is that, 39th? It used yeah. to be 39th. And um, instead it ended up in Lentz. And I'm in real estate, and one of the first classes in real estate is talking about freeways and how they divide train tracks, how they divide neighborhoods. It's, it's well, very well known. So before they put 205 in, they knew what they were doing to this neighborhood. For, for those of us who, who may not know, what has been the impact of 205? Well, I think Juanita can probably talk to it better since she's – historic been there longer than I have. I think what's happened is uh, one part of the um, community is undeveloped. It's been separated uh, with industrial land, but um, it just left people divided. It, 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 it totally separated um, the, the communities, the schools. Now you both are part of the LN LA, which is the Lentz Neighborhood Livability Association. And it's not the Lentz Neighborhood Association. It's not city sanctioned. It's a nonprofit that's completely separate from any arm of the city, right? Yes. The Lentz Neighborhood Association, uh, for some reason, has been the only association recognized uh, by the city. So what is the purpose of the LNLA, which you both are part of, Juanita and Todd, and what does the LNLA do? They, we have a monthly meeting, neighborhood meeting, and they bring in excellent guests from a wide variety of institutions, organizations, what have you, to inform us. And I wish that we had a lot more people involved in coming to these meetings to be informed of detailed operations, what's happening, it's it's very informative. And I think one of the biggest things that the public lacks is is being informed. And I think it's a real detriment. It gives an opportunity for the community to actually speak with these individuals. Are, are these meetings open to the public? Like, could anybody attend these? Yes. It's the second Thursday of every month, uh, starting at 6.30. And they have a Facebook page. They get a lot of pushback, I noticed, on especially on Twitter, which is sort of the where all the polarized, super online people live, like the, the far left and the far right tends, tends to live. Um, and I've noticed there's a fair amount of vitriol directed at the LNLA. Why do you think that is? <laughs> 
I think they're a threat. Um, I think they're a threat to um, the lack of any kind of real response uh, to Lentz's concerns, um, and they're call they're not afraid to call out, um, you know, those that are promising this or promising that and deliver zero. Um, I know David and Shar have had to move from their home and out of Lentz because of these threats. Um, very scary, very dangerous. Yet they continue to coordinate and provide information. You know, information is, is key. And sometimes I don't think they like um, some of the information shared, and I don't know why, but because it has to do with our community. Do you know what kind of threats they've received? Well, I know that they've uh, had uh, emails, phone calls. Uh, when I went to their house, they had a baseball bat at their front door. Um, uh, I don't want to say I don't want to say too many things to divulge. Yeah, you know, of course, the, the, of course. The, the security measures that they've had to take. Yeah. Um, but they 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 had to leave. They were forced out. But they continue to advocate for Lentz, and I really respect them for that. And so anybody could advocate for Lentz. You don't have to live in Lentz to it, be engaged in the association. Um, so it's not like a typical neighborhood association where you have to live within some sort of geographical boundary. No, it's, it's open at all, and, and we welcome all because we've had Commissioner Ryan. We've had uh, Commander Hurley. We've had great guests. Almost every single month, I'm I'm just in awe of who they can get to come speak to us, and it's just it, it, like Juanita said, it's great to be able to have a discussion with these people and ask these people questions and inform these people of what we're living with. Um, hope you know, and it's it's great. And David and Char are great people, and they're very misunderstood and uh, misrepresented. Misrepresented in what way? Well, it's just uh, they're they're called out as being anti-homeless. They're called out as being uncompassionate. Those are false. Um, David and Char do a lot for homeless. They try to get them shelters. They have a long list of shelters um, that they can recommend to people. They talk to the shelter uh, owners or operators. Um, we are... The LNLA is a, uh, what is it called, a coordinator, what have you, where we can actually, uh, you know, assign people to the Hope Bybee Lakes place. We can Not, refer them. We've toured Bybee Lakes and different shelters and had re have relationship with these owners of these shelters to where they trust us to, to allow us to refer people to them. And I don't, I think that's a privilege. Now, do these, w one thing that we're, told a lot is that these shelters don't have, maybe not these shelters, but that shelters in Portland in general don't have space. Um, I mean, of course, we're also told that, that homeless people generally don't like to be in shelters because they have barriers. But do you know whether the shelters that you're speaking about specifically, like Bybee, do they have space when you do call them? They have a huge facility. It's uh, the Bybee Lakes Hope Center. I don't know. I think toured at the separate time that I did, but it's a, a wonderful facility. I mean, it's it's housed with uh, a medical staff, gardens, living quarters that look like a family home, and donations, and they're ready. They at one point, I think they had a hundred beds that were open. 
Have you ever referred somebody to a shelter or gotten them connected to one of those shelters you mentioned and had them turn that person away? Bybee Lakes, I think, has some some minimums that they expect, um, and I think those are probably the, the the only people that have been turned away from Bybee Lakes that I'm aware of. I know that they have limited capacity, um, but Bybee Lakes is the standard bearer. Um, they take zero government money. The government will not support them, and they are the uh, the the gold standard. Um, that we have in Portland, and they get uh, basically nothing from the city government because they're successful in addressing this problem and, and actually helping these people with their addictions, with their with their mental illnesses. Um, and it doesn't seem like the city is interested in solving the problems. Is Bybee Lakes Hope Center at the Wapato facility that yes. sat empty for so long that Jordan Schnitzer bought? Correct. And it's been, it's a beautiful. So it is enormous. It's enormous. And it, it has all of the facility, has everything you would ever need to um, get off the street and get medical help and mental help. Juanita, do you remember how many people, it, the capacity of, of Hope uh, Bybee Lakes is? Because their operating budget is $1 million a year. For $1 million a year, they're helping all these people holistically get back on their feet and be self-supporting. That's so interesting because according to the city of Portland's own website, these safe rest shelters that they're rolling out, the sort of Dan Ryan's project, their own website says that they will cost, and I'm, I'm sure this is conservative because it's, it's their project, between $600,000 and $1.5 million per safe rest. And, and that's going to provide help for how many people? Is it 26? Or no, I'm sorry. Is it up, I think up it's to 50? I think it's 60-something. Yes. I will check on that, and I'll cite to the website. Yeah, and like you said, you're, you're talking conservatively 600,000-plus. Um, these are low-barrier, um, basically government-sanctioned open-air drug markets. Um, I 60 don't, pods per site, it says. This is from portland.gov. Um, and it's, it's the, the title of the website is funding for safe rest villages. So it's their own information. Yeah. So you're talking about possibly 60 people. Uh, I don't think the city knows, but we certainly haven't been told a really good confident number on what the annual cost would be on that. Yeah. It says here on this website, portland.gov, it says, City, and I'm quoting from the website, City Council allocated $16.02 million to the Safe Rest Village program in the first round of ARPA dollars, the American Rescue Plan Act dollars. Those are federal grants to the city of Portland to deal with homelessness. So $16.02 million of that federal grant is going to Safe Rest, and it says the streets to stip- Stability ARPA Round 2 decision package requested an additional $28.1 million to fund Safe Rest Villages through the end of December 2024. Okay, so you're talking about 16 plus 28, that's 38, that's $44 million. That's 44 years of, 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 of supporting Bybee Lakes. 44 years of supporting Bybee Lakes, which is a fabulous center. 
um, that's actually helping people. Um, Bybee Lakes, you know, there's some accountability there to help people uh, navigate through a traumatizing event. I mean, this is unfair for people to live in these circumstances. And um, yeah, it's a, there are some barriers. It says that it does not serve sex offenders because it does serve children. I'm looking at the helpinghandsreentry.org, their website. Um, it says Helping Hands serves children and domestic violence survivors, so it, it doesn't serve registered sex offenders. It doesn't serve people who aren't permitted around women or children. The facilities are also all sober, so yes. clients yes. cannot be in possession of or under the influence of any intoxicants on site. Do you know whether they are able to get people into detox or treatment programs. Like, let's say I'm, I'm homeless and I am, I'm struggling with addiction. How do I get into Bybee? Can Bybee help me get into treatment? Do you know? They have to be willing to get off the drugs and alcohol. In right. Order it, to obviously, it has to be voluntary. Right. But to answer your question, <clears throat> I believe they can get into Bible Lakes, as Juanita said, if they're willing. And that is the reason why Alan Evans uh, uh, declined to be involved with the safe refs villages because there is no accountability. There's and no vetting process. There's no vetting process, there, and, and, and therefore he knows it will not be successful. So he declined to take part in any of the Safe Rest Villages. By not be successful, what do you mean people won't be able to transition out of there? Correct. Because they won't have life skills? There's no incentive for job training or, or drug treatment? Well, whatever, whatever the parameters the city was setting up, um, Alan Evans knows from experience, uh, many years of experience, that they were not going to be successful, and he didn't want to be a part of something that was that had no chance of being successful. That's right. So um, Sophie Peel from Willamette Week actually did a piece on this uh, March 1st, 2022, pretty recently, and the title is Helping Hands Withdraws from Discussions to Run Safe Rest Village in Southwest Portland. The Subtitle is, it was just one month ago that the nonprofit and the city said it was likely to be the site manager at one of the villages. It says, CEO of Helping Hands, I'm quoting from the article, Ellen Evans told Ryan's office and the county in a February 28th letter that the decision was based on the type of people that would be brought to the villages. It is with regret that we must inform everybody involved with the Safe Rest Villages initiative that we will not be able to be Part of this partnership, Evans wrote, while we are eager to be a part of the solution to providing shelter and homes for those who are facing homelessness, there are key components of the Safe Rest Ordinance and the contract that conflict with the organization's mission and philosophy. Evans described his concern that the city would be relocating people from what the city deems, quote-unquote, high-impact camps to the villages in his letter, which was obtained by Willamette Week. And um, it goes on to explain what high-impact is defined as in the city ordinance, which is including but not limited to evidence of drug use, paraphernalia, improperly disposed of syringes, verified reports of violence or criminal activity other than camping. So those are the people that are going to these safe rest villages that, that, are being, that the city is putting in neighborhoods across the city. That's correct. 
what is your background, Juanita? I know you have some um, experience, personal experience with violence and, and homelessness I in do. your family. And in fact, you said your brother passed away from drug abuse and he was shot and killed by the police. So I, I know what that is. I know that hurt. And your nephew was killed, right? Something happened with your nephew? That was uh, killed in a mental health facility. And so I understand both of these issues. And it hurts to see people on the street living um, in squalor. We experience this. Todd and I both experience this on a daily basis. Um, I do take it personally. Um, I've experienced it, and I know the hurt. So every day, both of you, I mean, do you think this is everybody in in Lentz? Is everybody in Lentz dealing with this every day, or is it something about where your properties are situated, do you think? I, I, I think that if, if everybody in Lentz is dealing with it every day, it'd be more the loud cars and the drug dealing going past their house. Um, so to answer your question, I don't think every resident is dealing with it, but certainly um, Lentz has been neglected, abused, used, and uh, as a dumping ground. Um, and, and that's where we are today. It's a dumping ground. A lot of people go in their homes and stay in their homes because that's where they feel safe. But I can tell you, I haven't slept through the night in two or three years from hearing gunshots in the night and um, traffic running in and out of uh, our neighborhoods. And um, also the homeless issues. I mean, we can't even go to the uh, Flavel Max station platform without stepping over feces and needles and no one wants to take responsibility. Well, I don't, I don't just not feel safe in my neighborhood. I don't feel safe in, on my, in my property and I carry bear spray anytime I'm on my property and sometimes I have it by my nightstand at night. Um, during the beginning, during July and, and August of 2020, I spent 60 straight days sleeping on my living room couch because I knew I had multiple exits in case my house got firebombed versus my bedroom. I only had one exit. That's how scared and how out of control uh, my area is. It, it's, it's, it's living in hell. It's, uh, I, I could give you example after example of... And I think you should, Todd. I think you should tell, <laughs> tell people really what's happening. Your your area is uh, really a bad uh, situation. And, 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 and the city is very well aware of it. Um, I've contacted. The mayor says contact one point of contact. One point of contact is a black hole. What is one point of contact? Well, one point of contact, they receive uh, nearly 2,000 calls a day about the homeless from citizens of Portland trying to let the city, Portland city, know of instances in their neighborhood that they're asking, crying for help. Um, and so they receive, like I said, almost 2,000 calls a week. And um, 
uh, of those of those almost two thousand calls a week, I am not one of them. If I was calling, I could call 10, 20 times a day easy. I don't call the one point of contact because I know it's a black hole. So, um, you know, the mayor telling citizens to call to get help, one point of contact, he must know it's a black hole. And uh, I just don't understand why um, it's, it's, it hasn't been fixed. It hasn't been uh, run more effectively. Um, it, it's really... Um, an embarrassment and uh, you know people are crying out for help people are scared they're they they do not feel safe and where do we go we don't have anywhere to go the the police can't or won't do anything uh, because they know that there will be no prosecution so it's not worth their time well there's also a repercussion I think if they do anything that's true and 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 so in my instance, I I call the police maybe one out of every twenty or thirty times, um, only when it's really bad, um, because a lot of times I'm scared of retaliation. The, the police come out, they do nothing. It's the middle of the night. My lights are on in my house. They know that it was me that called the police, and like I said, I spent sixty straight nights sleeping on my living room couch uh, because I thought my house might be firebombed. Nobody in Portland should live how we're living. It is so disrespectful. Um, I live in an in an in a neighborhood that is ninety five percent minority people. It's a working class poor neighborhood. This is exactly who the politicians say they care about the most, and it's it's really it's 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 frightening how how untrue it is that they care about the poor, the working class. Or minority people. You said you were afraid your house would be firebombed, like literally. F- what what do you base that on? Fire firebombed. Well, because um, of of basically my area for about a year and a half was an anonymous zone, like the one that was in Seattle, where whoever took over the the city blocks. That's how my neighborhood was, and and again is is getting to that point again where there was no safety at all, uh, fires every day, fights every day, uh, with deadly weapons. Uh, it was out of control. And so I would try to document some of these occurrences, and if they saw me doing that, they would rush over to me and assault me for 20, 25, 30 minutes, uh, threaten me, tell me to get back into my blank house right now. Um very, very scary. So I have I have a burner, uh, one of those things that, that they use to, to keep warm or to cook or whatever. They placed it on my deck. They placed a fork to a, a bicycle on my deck. This was the night after I got assaulted one night. Um, and as a threat, as a threat to me, at any moment we can burn your house down. Um, right now in my driveway, I've got a uh, paint somebody painted on there okay let's play another threat okay let's play they're saying okay let's let's get it on um it's 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 very very scary and it's something that i don't wish on any family to have to go through and it's it's just unfair well and juanita you live around family you have family in your neighborhood, which is part of the reason that you feel 
a sense of responsibility and you feel like you can't, you, you have a duty to not move. Yes. To protect your family. I do. I had, um, until recently, I was guardian and conservator for my parents. I had them uh, in a home there on my street because they were in a foster home and I didn't get to see them. So I thought, why not put them two, three doors down from my home? Um, I do have a son and a daughter that live next door with a grandbaby, myself and my husband. And... um, one of the things um, that I did, Todd, was I went to each one of my neighbors and I made out a, a map and I got their phone numbers and I have an annual party, which we have live bands that come out and play. Um, I tried to get our families together so we could get to know one another. And I have a text uh routine where if there's something going on in the neighborhood and someone's walking up we don't know I text my neighbors but I feel a responsibility because we're invested in the community I want to stay I lived in Portland for 40 plus years and it's always been a beautiful place so I don't want to be feel like I need to be ran out of my place because uh, of crime and and uh the city not responding. So I try and uh, find solutions, but it really puts it on our backs to defend our own self. And yet there are repercussions for that as well. So we're left to just, as best we can, um, form groups that communicate with one another, that um, look out for one another. And uh, that's been one of the solutions. But yes, I'm invested in what about you, Todd? Why do you? Why don't you move? Well, actually, um, I, I'm probably going to be putting my house for sale in the next 30 days. Oh wow! Oh my um, gosh! Yeah, I, I bought this property as an investment. To it's it's one block away from a, a max station. It's one block away from TriMet, and it's maybe eight blocks away from massive shopping, WalMarts, more transit, more mass transit, all sorts of jobs, restaurants, what have you. Um, and I've been sitting on this property for about five years because there's no way in heck I am going to invest more money in this property and have people be subject to what we're subject to. Um, next to me on, on both sides of me are Hispanic families of four generations that live there. You've got kids that are subject to and growing up seeing violence, seeing women running around naked, people yelling the, the most horrible things as loud as they can, this is hell, and it's not safe. And I've got the means to move out. Uh, like I said, this my property, is you can build 30-plus units on it. It's got a great view of Mount Scott. It's got a view of Mount Hood. It's got a, a beautiful trees. I live across the street from a green space that was filled with horrible things and what have you. I don't want to go into too much but it was an anonymous zone, and it should be an open green space for kids and families to play, have picnics, uh, walk their dogs, et cetera, and it's filled with bad people. We can't use the MAC stations without feeling uh, very vulnerable and Your unsafe. grandson was assaulted, right? He was. He, 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 He's like seven feet tall, and he was still assaulted. Yeah. He came off the max. He had to—it uh, was a person that was very high, disoriented— 
He said the only way he got away was just to turn circles and keep turning circles away from the person. And they were disoriented enough to where they they couldn't keep up with him. So he got away. But I also have a son that, that uh, works off of uh, Hollywood. And it, you know, it's just, we can't use the services. Just unbelievable. T- tell us a little bit about my father's house. And uh, this is a family shelter. They have, um, they can have up to five people in each room in that facility. I didn't realize that. But um, yeah, they have a, a whole program available for families. And so they do have a vetting process um, to know who's coming in and out due to children being on the property. They also have transitional housing that is located right on the property for people that are transitioning out. They also have um, playground facilities. And and I was very impressed with her program. Yeah. Um, and I think she said that one of the families actually bought a house, uh, moved from, from that property into a new home that they had purchased. Um, they require their people to work. They require them to pay a small amount each month. It's holding, it's holding people accountable at the same time, greatly helping these people. Um, and, that, and that's what we want to do is we want to help people. We want to help people up, um, not give them handouts, but, but educate them and, and so they can help themselves and hopefully help others. They have no government funding, by the way. Right. And Juanita, I think you said they had a 75% success rate according to their presentation at the meeting. They bought the, they bought the property themselves and it's all self-sufficient without the government help. It's all with private donations. And um, it's, it sounds like a wonderful program. People may need medication. They haven't had, uh, they've been in addiction. They haven't been taking their medication. So it's so important to have uh, that piece of accountability. But, you know, living on unsanctioned camping is living on public property, at which at some point the city may have to take it back, and so there may be issue there. But um, as long as people are contributing to the community, I think it's important that they, they be able to... Um, be in a place where they have some accountability. What do you say to people who say, how dare you privileged housed people tell us that that we need to be accountable for anything or tell us what rules we need to live by? Uh, Well, this is not a housed versus the unhoused. The government would like it to be that, but it's not. Why would the government like it to be like that? I think the government wants to divide us and keep us divided. Um, and so they want to pit the house versus the unhoused. And again, it's, it's not us versus them. We want to help them. We want to see them get help. Um, we don't want them. We don't want to be terrorized any longer. And so if, if the house and the unhoused communicate, and, and work together, then, you know, so. 
Well, <laughs> I lost my train of thought. I, I worked very hard to get where I am. Um, I was a single mother for a long time. I worked three jobs at one time and went to school. Um, I, I've worked um, to get anything that I've ever had. And I pay a lot of taxes. I pay a lot of taxes. So if there's money there to help people get off the street, that's what I'd like to see. I'm sorry that maybe I've been able to buy a home, but I'm still compassionate in my heart. I don't want to see people unhoused. Um, I, I, I think there is this issue of trying to divide people, and that's just unfair. It's unfair to do that. Um, there are a lot of people in the Lentz community that care for one another, no matter what their social or economic status is. And um, I don't know. I just think that's a, a division uh, that doesn't need to be there for our community. Well, and the, the other thing you have to remember is that every single one, and I, I'm only speaking to the people that are outside my house and in my neighborhood, every single one of them have been offered shelter time after time after time, and they've rejected it. They've declined it. They've refused it. They don't want shelter. How, how do you know they've all been offered shelter? Because I've seen it. I've seen it. In the dead of the winter, the city's out there every day trying to help these people get into shelter. They don't want to be in shelter. I had a guy tell me the other day um, that and, and his, his, his sister was dating a homeless guy on meth, and the guy told me, these people want to die. I'm a half, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. I'm, I'm always hopeful. It really saddened me to hear that him say that these people, they just want to die. They want to die out here. I don't want them to die out here. I want them to get help. I want them to be prosperous and happy and healthy and live a long life. All of these people that are out here doing this, these drugs are going to die out here. Why are we facilitating that? Why are we funding that? It makes no sense to me. In what in what way are we funding it? They've all got phones. They've all got nicer clothes, nicer shoes than I have. Uh, the tents are nonstop. Um, one Saturday, three within a within a two hour period, three different people came out with food. While the by the time the fourth person came out for food, nobody needed anything more. They are, they are flush with, with food and, and with this and that. So, we pick it up all the time. Oh, all it's, it's all over. Food. Oh, f food waste? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's it's perished everywhere. food waste everywhere. Yeah. So it's, you know. So, one, Juanita, you said, I pay a lot in taxes. Why do you think... Why isn't the city responding to you all? I don't know, but I'm not this powerful person. However, I am a mother, a wife, a grandmother. I'm a person in the community that cares about where I live and the people that surround me. And whenever you call the city for help, you should be able to get the help. When you pay taxes, when you are involved with your community, you shouldn't be on a 45-minute call to 911 when you have 
uh, an issue going on. And it's 45 minutes because of the wait time or when you call it's busy or, I've I mean, those are my experiences. So I'm assuming I've called uh, for gunshots, 45 minute wait. And this was behind my house. I mean, it's like you don't know what's going on, you know. So I was on a 45-minute wait, got through to 911. They said, is this about the the gunshots? Yes. They took the information, hung up. I waited 45 minutes to get that response, not any follow-up or, or knowing what's going on. Um, but even even for – there's I, I just feel like there's no accountability for – how much money is being funneled uh, into this homeless situation? I don't think the truth has really come out about how much money is being funneled in the homeless situation and where the money is going. And I'm pretty sure that there's a lot of money that's going to the homeless situation for it to just continue to grow and grow and grow. But the narrative uh, has been... These poor people, we should be more caring, and we are. We don't want to see people, young women, and being sex trafficked, uh, open sex acts, blocks from the school, uh, right in front of the Flavel Max station, where people are coming and going, trying to get back, you know, to school to work. Um, I just think I I don't think they are listening to the community. What do you say if the city asked you what do you, what do you want us to do? I mean, the we we go to these people in the winter. They don't want to go into shelters. What more do you want us to do? What would you say? Like if the city said, "What what are we supposed to do with these people who they don't want help?" Well, <clears throat> they what I know is they cannot be allowed in neighborhoods in front of businesses terrorizing neighborhoods, terrorizing businesses. Um, it's not fair to the neighborhoods. It's not safe for the neighborhoods. When you're on these drugs, you are unstable and potentially violent and dangerous. I've witnessed it all. I've got a bullet in my shop. Uh, February of 2021, three nights in a row, I had bombs go off in the middle of the night. Not commercial-grade fireworks, bombs. In the month of February 2021... How do you know we they had, were bombs? Well, because I know what fireworks are, and, and these people have plenty of commercial-grade fireworks that are illegally bought from Washington that cost hundreds of dollars. These were not those. These were bombs where you thought your house just blew up or your neighbor's house just blew up. It was that significant and loud and impactful that... They were bombs, and we had five in February of 2021, and we had three three nights in a row in the middle of the night. These these are terrorist acts. What is the agenda? What's behind? What's the purpose of the acts? Well, I, I think for the, the February bombs were these people were being swept. They were being notified that they were being swept. So, so the encampment was going to be cleaned up. Correct, and so they took it out on us. You know, it's again, it's just, it, it's so unfair to the neighborhoods, to the businesses. We didn't do anything wrong. We didn't 
invite these this situation to us. The businesses did not invite the situation to us, but we're all victims. This is insane. It's like being held hostage. Like you, you, you have no say in getting help for the people. It's just uh, the ones that are being violent. And I'm not saying all homeless are violent. That's not what I'm saying. But what happens is you get people with mental illness and addiction together, and violence happens. And that's my concern for these safe rest villages when they're going to be embedded. Uh, is I'm fearful it's going to be significant. Well, especially when under the ordinance itself it says, quote-unquote, high-impact homeless, and defines the high-impact homeless that will be placed in these safe rest villages as people engaged in criminal activity. Yes, and they're going to be by churches, by businesses. In neighborhoods. I mean, Dan Ryan said we're moving them into all the neighborhoods. Sam Adams had a call with the managing partners of the law firms. Willamette Week reported on this and said, um, we're going to need your backing. We need you all to bring your employees back to work downtown. Don't worry. We're going to move all the homeless people into the neighborhoods via these safe rest villages. But we need you to back us up because the neighbors are going to be upset. Well, I think another issue for Lentz is that we're kind of there in my area, especially we're on the border of Multnomah County and Clackamas County. And um, the services are more being in the inner Southeast area. So the cops are not really out on these outer edges very much unless there's something going on. So without patrols, uh, the homeless kind of, uh, the ones in the criminal activity know the best places to camp to keep under the radar and, and, and so that's the areas, the pockets that they go to because uh, no city agency wants to take responsibility. It's where ODOT, PDOT, or uh, MAX platforms merge. Uh, they know that these spots and these parcels of land are free range. Juanita, you talked about people don't understand the money that is flowing into the homelessness crisis and um, KGW, I, I think you're right. There's not a lot of reporting about it. KGW did do a story uh, April 1st, 2022, and this is on KGW.com, and it was about People for Portland, the group that um, was trying to eliminate outdoor homeless camping with a new ballot initiative. And what this article said is um, some of – some. Listeners know about the homelessness tax. Some some voters know about the homelessness tax, and that's a metro tax. So that's Multnomah County, Washington County, and Clackamas County, and that was passed in May 2020. Tax on high earners to fund homelessness services expected to bring in roughly $250 million, million. a year Correct. for 10 years for total of $2.5 billion with a B as B. in baby. Yeah, you just follow the money. And I'm telling you, when you cross over to Clackamas County, the Clackamas County sheriffs do not put up with a lot of the situations that are happening in Lynch. Well, and neither does, I, I'm, I'm sure they don't. And interestingly, um, although this tax covers the quote-unquote metro area, which would include, like, let's say, Washington County, um, Kevin Barton, who's a friend of mine from college, who I used to work with, uh, is the Washington County DA, and he doesn't take 
crap from anybody. He will prosecute. I mean, the criticism against him is that he over prosecutes, but um, it's interesting that Multnomah County is really seems to be bearing the brunt of this homelessness crisis. Although all the metro regions seem interested in helping it out. And I think part of that is because Portland is the anchor to all those cities. And if Portland doesn't, I think that's very, um, I think, I think it was a very, that was rational thinking on the part of metro, which was, look, Portland's our anchor. And if, if Portland doesn't do well, our cities aren't going to do well that's either. Correct. And if Portland's not, if Port, Oregon is really a city state, right? I mean, we, we decide the governor, we, we decide most of what goes on um, in the state for sure. We elect the president and, um, if Portland isn't doing well, the state isn't doing well. And I think everybody, you know, rich taxes are popular because most people don't have to pay them. But I think everybody was hoping that if we just throw money at this, it's not, it's about money. And if we just throw money at this problem, it'll start to go away. And I think we're all looking around now going, why is it getting worse? It's because everybody's starting nonprofits and getting that money. I mean, just follow the money for the homeless situation. I mean, it that's where the money is going. And it's not going to get better if we continue to allow people to stay on the streets. And I'm, I'm sorry, it's probably not a popular view, but I think it's unfair to everyone that we do not step up to the plate and take those billions and hold people in accountability and clean up our streets and allow our children to have a future. Right now, it is very bleak when you can't allow your children to go into the park for fear they're going to be shot. They can't use the facilities that's been built that the city has spent years cultivating. Our parks have, we have the most beautiful parks in the world, but they've been devastated. And it's going to take so much more money now to renovate these facilities. It's it's a sad situation. Oh, go ahead, Todd. I was just going to say, and it's not fair to the homeless. It's not fair to the homeless. Um, they need help, and they're not getting help. If the city thinks that new shoes, a new tent, and food is helping, it's not helping. They have serious drug problems. They have serious mental problems, and none of those are being addressed. It's, it's really, truly tragic and sad. What do you say to people who say how, not all homeless people have mental illness and drug problems and or how do you know that they have mental illness and drug problems? I, I would agree that not all, but what is the percentage? I mean, we're talking about 90, 95% have mental illness or drug addiction, so we're talking about... How do you know that? I'm just guessing. I don't, I don't know. I'm you're just, saying that's based on what you're seeing with your own eyes. Uh, it's just, yeah. It's That's just, what I guessed as well when I talked to Kevin Dahlgren when yeah, he came in here. Yeah, it's just, it's my perception. If I'm wrong, tell me the percentage, city. Who who knows? Does the city know? It doesn't seem like to me like the city really has a good handle on who's out there if they can't identify that. Well, I mean, they this, don't. Yeah, why aren't they keeping metrics on that? That's what, what the point I was going to make. There should be a central point where... All of this data is being collected, yeah. and there isn't. Everybody's doing their own separate data collecting. So you, you can't get a clear picture. You're going to spend billions and billions on a project that is going to continue without understanding the full picture. And 
there's no data collection. I, I do know Bybee Lakes has a, a beautiful collection, and I asked the question, is the city, you know, working with you to collect the same data? Do you share? And there isn't. There isn't any sharing of the data. And it's that, to me, is where they should be putting some of the money. The, the city is actually going to be, hopefully, investing in a, a data software um, that's been reported in the last couple of weeks that will help identify these people so that every time a city worker goes and meets with this person, they're starting new. They're going to have a database knowing this, the person's name, age, history, so that they can actually help these people. Um, that's a good thing. Um, but it's it should have been done a long time ago. And it just, to me, it doesn't seem like there's any sense of urgency from our government. And and this is, this is a crisis. Um, we're beyond emergency. We're in crisis, catastrophic zone. And the city should be the mayor and the commissioners, in my opinion, should be up working on this problem 24 hours a day. They should not be sleeping until this problem is solved. And I don't think they have any interest in solving it. Why not? Well, because if they solve it, then all of these nonprofits are going to be out of business, and these are all their family and friends, like Mark Jolin and Mark Jolin's wife. I mean, perfect example. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's very sad. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, um, and actually you have a personal connection to Mark Jolin, right, Todd? Mark, Mark Jolin was head of JOIN for a while, uh, which is um, a homelessness outreach center, and he was he also worked under, he no longer does, but he worked under Multnomah County Chair Deborah Kofori doing homelessness work. He's mostly done homelessness work most of his life. He's been he's been working for the city for twenty years. He's the director of uh, joint office of housing, whatever uh, joint venture between the Multnomah County and the city. <clears throat> he he started this, and I believe it was in two thousand sixteen this was started. I think um, he just stepped down, but he what he was. Yeah, yeah, he just stepped down. Now he's going to be in charge of special projects for the city. So he never he hasn't left the city. I went to high school with Mark Jolin. I was on Mark Jolin's tennis team. Um, I called Mark Jolin three times um, when all this stuff was happening really bad in my neighborhood. Mark Jolin did not call me back one time. Um, uh, It's unexplainable, um, the lack of accountability by the city and the county on this issue. Yeah, Nigel Jacquez from Willamette Week does a lot of reporting on just kind of what's going on. He's one of the few people that actually does a pretty good job in this city about transparency and he actually did a article October 6 2021 and the title is critics question the close relationships between nonprofits and the county office that battles homelessness one example of that coziness involves a man who has run the joint office since its founding Mark Jolin and in this article it says that um, the Metro is the largest beneficiary, I'm quoting from the article now, of the homelessness services bond, um, and that budget is only going to grow. It's going to send a billion, with a B, dollars to the joint office over the next decade. It's called the joint office, it says, because City Hall and the county chip in roughly equal funding to it. 
30 million to 35 million dollars each year and actually hardesty one thing i will give her credit for is that she criticized um, the way this money was being sucked up by by nonprofits and the beneficiaries who the beneficiary she was questioning who the beneficiaries of the money is and I'm quoting from the article, it says, one example of that coziness involves the man who has run the joint office since its founding, Mark Jolin. Jolin, 52, a top student at his class at the University of Chicago Law School, checked corporate law 15 years ago to help the homeless. First at the Portland nonprofit Join, J-O-I-N. In January 2015, he shifted to Multnomah County. Join was then called a home for everyone. And in July 2016, became the joint office for homeless services. Observers who know Jolin say he's scrupulously honest, fair, and entirely committed to reducing homelessness. And it continues to say that in December, this was 2021, the three counties were gearing up to start spending the new Metro homelessness services money, and Jolin's office requested proposals from consultants to help the counties prepare. 39 firms responded. Jolin's office ranked the proposals and sent the results to three Metro area, area counties. They'll use the scores to decide on the contracts. The top score on the RFP was a company called Christina Smock Consulting. Smock is Jolin's wife. And there was a question, of course, about the propriety of that. Those contracts included $16,500 to write a report on poverty for the Multnomah, I'm quoting from the article, for, for the Multnomah County Department of County Human Services in 2015, a $28,000 contract in, in 2016, um, Jolin's wife obtained all of these contracts within Jolin's orbit with JOIN. A $22,000 contract in 2019 with Human Solutions, a shelter provider, and a $23,400 contract in 2019 also with DCHS. JOIN and Human Solutions get much of their funding from Jolin's office. Um, he says he had disclosed the conflicts of interest when he joined the county, and he doesn't believe her contacts her contracts violate county or state ethical guidelines, and apparently nobody else did either, and apparently they technically didn't because nobody's done anything about it. Um, but it, Hardesty called into question the ethics there, and I, I agree with her. She says it doesn't smell right. It's not appropriate when you're handling the amount of public money the joint office is that you have to avoid the appearance of a conflict, and I 100% agree with that. I, I totally agree with it, and, you know, it would be one thing if there was – demonstrable, um, um, what's it called? Um, uh, data. Well, data, uh, but results. Yeah, some metrics about yeah, who, some, who's getting yeah, housed. Yeah, where where is this money going? Okay, this is going. What are the results you're getting? And if the results aren't there to, um, to justify the money being spent there, why are we continuing to spend the money there? Well, and, you know, interestingly, this is also from Nigel, Nigel Jacquez, December 2nd, 2021. This is from Willamette Week. Multnomah County Auditor finds joint office overstated number of homeless people it housed. The team found placements may have been overstated by more than 20%, the article says. And it says that reliable data on the work of battling homelessness will be increasingly important as the joint office ramps up spending of the 10-year $2.5 billion Metro Homelessness Services ballot measure passed by voters in 2020, and the auditor was trying to determine whether the joint office was getting good value. I'm quoting from the article for taxpayers' money when it paid contractors for permanent housing and home for homeless Portlanders. And her office acted after hearing reports of Sandy Studios, an apartment building 
where a partial ceiling collapse revealed black mold in the walls. Right. So she requested data showing placements made in fiscal 2020, 2021. But, but she said the office, the, the joint office provided information that wasn't useful. Um, it says among joint office program participants that were placed in housing, approximately 60% were missing address data or had address data that was not their actual addresses. Um, the auditor wrote in a December 1 memo to Multnomah County Chair Deborah Kofori and Joint Office Director Mark Jolin, without addresses, there was no way for auditors to determine where people were actually living or whether their placements were adequate. In our evaluation of the data we received, the data were not reliable for audit purposes. We would be unable to draw reliable conclusions and extrapolate findings to the larger population. For this reason, we've chosen to end the audit. And it says, beyond the missing data, her team discovered another problem. The joint office was classifying people as having been moved into permanent housing who had merely begun the placement process. And of course, um, Kafori and, and Jolin offered ex explanations and defended themselves and said that, you know, there's it's complicated. There's a historical division of responsibilities between the city and the county. And it was only earlier this year that the joint office took responsibility, et cetera. But people should check out that article that Nigel wrote in Willamette Week. It's a perfect example of people need to talk to one another, and coordinate services. Well, and people need, the, the results need to be, have to be measured. Um, and, if the, and if we're not getting the results for the amount of money that we're spending, then we need to re-examine why we're spending the money there. Um, it also could have been just getting a person in uh, one night, you know, of homelessness, one night <laughs> in a hotel being, not, not getting off the street. Yeah, and 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 I I I've heard a lot of things about Commissioner Caffrey and questions about her um, ethics, and you know she's been there a long time, and Mark Jolin the same thing, and I think the city, the citizens of Portland are more than willing to spend whatever it takes to address this issue and help this issue. Oh, they obviously are. Yeah. But the I mean, especially if it's not their money, right? Especially if it's a rich tax. But obvious, I, I think if you surveyed virtually any Portlander, they'd be willing to cut some of their own check to this stuff. Yeah, and, and, and the frustrating thing is is that we're getting nothing, but the problem's getting worse. So we're getting nothing for the amount of money we're spending, which is a ton of money. We're getting no results. Um, we're just spending more. We're piling more, and we're and it's getting worse. The problem is getting worse. What what's your do you, do you have any ideas from the speakers that you all have seen at your association or maybe just personal knowledge about why it's getting worse? Oh, well, I, I think people are just accepting that this is the way it's going to be. They're giving up. I I think if you look back, I think any time the government pours more money or spends more money on a problem, it gets bigger and it gets worse. Um, I mean, homelessness has been a a problem in, in Portland since the 1980s. If you go back and look at Oregonian articles in the year 2000, this was the top priority. So this has been a top priority for this government for 22 years, and the problem keeps getting worse and worse and worse. At the same time, we're spending more and more money on it. Yeah, there was a, a Sam Adams had a 10-year plan to end homelessness years ago. So what happened to that 10-year plan? There's no accountability. Oh wow, huh? This is new. And Juanita, you have, you're 
you were a public servant for a while. I was. I worked at uh, what's now Prosper Portland. Um, it was Portland Development Commission. I worked in economic development. We were responsible for what's. I worked with the team of awesome people there um, in economic development that uh, developed the tram, the Pearl, the waterfront, you know, beautiful areas, building the infrastructure. And then I went into the executive department and worked for um, setting up the commission meetings, running the commission meetings, and uh, eventually went into um, community engagement. And uh, I've been retired for almost nine years now. Tell us about this Coffee with Cops program that the LNLA does, whether you find it beneficial, and if you find it beneficial, why is it beneficial to talk to police officers from your specific precinct? Yeah, Commander Hurley is excellent. She is excellent. We've had several officers, they've come in and, you know, they hear certain things that might be happening in the community. They can't share with us, you know, what's going on on their end. But once they hear from people in the community, then they're able to, like, maybe put a connection together and see really what's happening in the community. So it's it's a great, um, it's a great mm-hmm. o- opportunity to speak directly with, with the area cops and get to know them yeah and and commander hurley she came to to one of our meetings and i was so impressed because immediately after that meeting i went home and here she was driving around my my neighborhood um and i was so thankful um dan commissioner dan ryan came to our meeting and i told him the exact same thing exactly what was happening in my neighborhood he didn't come to my neighborhood he never bothered to address or walk the MUP or anything like that. What did he say? How did he respond when you told him what was going on? Uh, do you remember, Juanita, how he responded? I mean, I don't, you I know, don't recall the Commissioner Ryan is a very nice guy. He, uh, I, I, I've, I've heard that. I've heard he's a good, he's a good person and he's a, he's a nice guy. And, and Yeah, and very personal. The, the problem is, is that I don't see, he's been in Austin for over a year and a half. I don't see anything being done. The, the, the biggest thing that I'm aware that, that, that they've done is they're not allowing homeless within 10 feet of a front door of a building or a home. That is a joke. If you look at the, the building codes, you can't build your front door closer than 10 feet to the property line. So that huge victory did nothing to help 99% of the residents of Portland because their house is 10 feet away from the property line. So their big victory did nothing to help anybody. It's it's truly disgusting. We had a neighbor that lived on Southeast 92nd. Um, she's kind of squished in between the MPU and 92nd and a large storage facility. And there were homeless that kept trying to take over her garage. So the city told her to take their belongings and put it out on the sidewalk. And she did. And... The, uh, they came back and burned her garage down. <laughs> well, and, and the and other those th- are the things that we share with cops when we go to coffee with cops, so they understand what the community is up against. And the other thing that I think should be a mandatory obligation is that the neighborhoods should be aware 
of who these people are that are across the street living in the tents. So if we have sexual predators or whatever violent felons, the neighbors should be made aware of that, and we're not. I've got a lot of kids in my neighborhood, and I have no idea if any of these people are sexual predators. That should be mandatory. And it, it, we, have, we are so uninformed, it's, 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 it's really unfair. Well, and it should be mandatory for these city-sanctioned safe rest villages that we are paying dearly for to be placed within our own neighborhoods. And the fact that Commissioner Ryan and, and the rest of the city cannot commit and will not commit to screening people for sex offenses, to screening for felons, to screening at all, really, is outrageous. Well, that's the way we feel about it, but, you know, it's, it's, I think once a community finds out our safe rest is going in, there are a large concern, not only with who's coming in, but how many more people is going to be drawing in the surrounding boundaries. The, the, the city is really putting the neighborhoods at, and the businesses at risk um, when they're allowing people that we don't know who they are, um, no way I, of identifying them. Um, we don't know what their background is. Um, it's, it's really putting us all at risk. What would you, what would you both like to see the, the city do ultimately? I mean, if you were in charge, what would you do? I would like, you want to go first, Juanita? I, I think I, I thought about this and I was trying to, just kind of get in my mind because, you know, they always want solutions. But quite frankly, I mean, I think a lot of people in my community have just given up because the city has been unresponsive to them. But I would say to the city, um, because you need to be aware of what's going on with your citizens and be responsive. You're the elected official. And, um, you know, let's stop with the blame game and let's just get down to the business of trying to solve this and finding solutions. And I, I think they've been trying to do that, but there's so much money going into homeless situations. That I think the first thing would be to find out who's on the street and what services they need. Get some data. Get some data so you know how to spend this money. Why throw it down uh, the gutter on services that you don't know are making a difference in the community. I don't think we can allow the homeless to be in neighborhoods or businesses anymore at all. We need to find a place for them to be for their own good so that we can get them the help so that they're in one place that we can identify them and get them the doctors, the counseling, whatever it is they need. We need to be able to find them and they need to be in a safe place in one place, um, and they cannot be in neighborhoods. They cannot be in businesses. It's, it's just, you're, we have a culture problem, and this is being accepted, and it's not acceptable. I agree. Do you, do you think that's why these people keep getting voted into office? I mean, Dan Ryan won his election handily. There, there's not going to be, I mean, he was, his, ultimately his biggest challenger was A.J. McCreary, so I understand why he ran one handily, although we had a couple other, we had one of his challengers, um, Stephen Cox, on the podcast. He's an HR guy, and he had 
um, good ideas about homelessness services. Sandy Bali was, I think, to the right for Portlanders because he was on Lars Larson, but he had some good ideas about homelessness. Is that the reason you think a lot of these people keep getting voted in and maybe also why Vidim and Renee aren't having a runoff and Hardesty is still in the running? Is it because of our culture here in the city? Definitely. Um, I, I think it's also a lot of it has to do with the local media. Uh, the local media is 100% bias. Um, the Oregonian, the Portland Tribune, I have contacted them both about their bias. I have contacted the Oregonian asking to be interviewed by Nicole I think her last name is Hayden and Maxine Bernstein. Um, I don't get any phone call. I don't get any response. The Portland Tribune did respond, and they said they would work on it and not do so much of it. But if you pick up the Oregonian, it is so apparently biased um, in favor of the homeless, um, in favor of— Although I will say they did endorse Renee Gonzalez, which surprised me because um, he was criticized— by Willamette Week and, the, of course, the Mercury. That wasn't a surprise, but criticized for quote, wanting to, quote-unquote, criminalize homelessness because he wants to enforce... Enforce existing Enforce laws. anti-camping. Yeah. I mean, laws... We're a nation run by laws. We're not a nation run by tyrants, monarchs, dictators, kings, queens. We're, we're, we rule by law, and that's what makes America what it is. And when you don't want to enforce, first of all, the laws were put in place to protect people, protect businesses, protect whatever. And if you don't want to enforce those laws, this is what you end up with, chaos, mayhem. And that's what we have in Lentz. I think the tides are turning, though. I think people are really becoming fed up with non-responsiveness, with defunding police. I mean... Look at the crime. I mean, what about the families of people that are shot and killed? I mean... Like your family. Yeah, I mean, why why are we so focused on things that are detriment to our, our neighborhoods and our families? We need to be focused on, on helping people and getting them out of these situations and allowing the police to do their job. Although I guess a lot of listeners um, here in Portland might ask, well, Juanita, why aren't you in favor of defending the police since you had a family member who was killed by police? Because, uh, you know, my brother was in a place where he shouldn't have been. He was a drug addict. He was killed in uh, running away from the cops. Uh, it wasn't a total... Uh, I can say it was a sad thing that happened, but the cops were doing their job. They warned him. He didn't stop. You know, uh, he was involved with things that he shouldn't have been involved with. Uh, I, I can't condone keeping that going on our streets. The cops have a right to do their jobs. And I think it's unfair to, to a lot of the cops that are in our town that are just walking on eggshells. They feel like they can't do their job for the retribution of people in the city. And it's just unfortunate. I mean, they're good people. They're keeping our streets as safe as they can. And they're doing a lot of things behind the scenes because they know their hands are tied. What do you say to critics who argue that police as a whole really aren't good people and that there are metrics that, that show that they're 
police generally, not necessarily PPB, but police generally are harder on on black people and that there's some there's some systemic racism going on there. How do you what are your thoughts on that? Todd. <laughs> you thought of me. Um, well, I, I think police have a right to go home at night after their job. I think police are the most highly scrutinized uh, people, organization that we have, maybe besides Big Oil and... Um, and They I, are, although it is, I will say, it is hard to hold them accountable with their unions. I mean, their unions are, I think their unions are, I, I don't think public unions should exist generally. I think p- the police union is part of that. You could be very well right, and I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, public unions are horrible, horrible. Um, you've got people all day long watching porn, and they can't be fired because they're part of a union. That's crazy. Um, so if the police union is part of that, then I oh, say, I think it's a big. I think the data shows that it's a huge part of that. That's how the bad apples stay in the bunch. Then we need to we need to get rid of that. If that's the problem, let's fix the problem. Yeah. See, Portland really has to pick a lane on this. It's really tricky. I think there there's a lot of things that they need to pick a lane on. Um, one is they're so they're overwhelming. I mean, one of the reasons we closed schools for two years, the teachers union is so powerful in this city, but um, and, and Portlanders love unions, but they hate police, and and so they've they're they, they've got this tension there, of they want to support unions, but police have a union that they're protected by. So, I mean, I don't hear support for getting rid of the police union, which is bizarre to me. <laughs> and, and then also, they love environmentalism. They, 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 everybody was, was applauding this climate change protest where, like, even elementary kids were allowed to run around unfettered um, in, in a in quote-unquote protest of, of climate change. We had Portland city county officials um, outside clapping for kids who were walking out of school to protest climate change. And yet we've got this homelessness crisis creating tons of garbage yeah. everywhere. I mean, the Willamette River, all you have to do is, is, is take a bridge from the west side to the east side and watch all the garbage cascading into I don't the Willamette under- River. I don't understand why they don't restrict. Where what, are the environmentalists on yeah, this? Yeah, absolutely. And not only that, the animal activists... I mean, yes, the wetlands—they're destroying. They're destroying the Bybee wetlands. The all, all the all the wetlands, really. I mean, there were articles about this about how they're just—I mean, it, the wildlife and and the nature officials—they can't do their jobs because because of homelessness camps. I think you know, going back to what you said about there, you know, there's bad people in all kinds of professions. I think you need to deal with the bad apples, but don't punish everybody else and everyone in the city because you feel like maybe there's a few that are that are not doing the, the right thing in, in a company. Uh, deal with the bad apples, but don't, don't punish us all. I mean, this is a big deal. Defunding a police and allowing our children, our young men and women, I don't care what color they are, to be shot. I mean, it's happening all over the city. It's happening all in a lot of the cities right now that have defunded their police. The crime is unbelievable Well, and right now. I w- I'll say, like, the third issue that I can think of um, that I think Portlanders kind of have to pick a lane on is they're obsessed with gun control. And I, 
I, sim- I, I mean, I sympathize with both sides of all, all these issues, except probably for the police union. Um, they're, they're for gun control, but they want to de- de- de-incarcerate everybody, and they want a criminal justice reform, and they don't want cops in, in contact with black lives. Well, here's a way to increase cop contact with black lives. Increase gun control. I mean, I, what, if we increase gun control in this city, how do we keep cops away from minority communities, which we know are disproportionately affected by gun violence? I don't, I don't know. I, nobody seems interested in wrestling with any of those issues or the conflict between those issues. Um, or, or maybe even sees a conflict. But one thing, um, you talked about crime being out of control, and um, we talked a bit about the environment. There is a K- KGW, is actually pretty good about reporting a lot of this stuff. There's a KGW article from November 12th, 2021, and the title is Nightmare Situation, Fairview Lake Floods After Homeless Camps Block Pump Access. And this was, So this was in Fairview, Oregon, and it says that people's homes in Fairview were completely flooded and um, in large part, some people's homes were destroyed because Fairview Lake, that I'm quoting from the article, is part of the headwaters for the Columbia River Slough that feed into Multnomah County's drainage district. It's a system that even on a very rainy day should have prevented Fairview Lake from rising to flood levels. We have a massive multi-million dollar pump to use on days like this. Sadly, the Multnomah County drainage district isn't able to get to the pump because of homelessness encampments. Fairview city officials tell KGW that Multnomah County crews have been trying to access the pump house near Marine Drive in Northeast Interlochen Lane to draw down the water in Fairview Lake, but for the past month they've encountered hostility from the homelessness camps surrounding and even blocking access to the pumps. It says they, the operations manager for Fairview Public Works says the encampments have created a nightmare for the crews. The city of Portland owns the land on which the pump house is located since last summer, the neighbors have all asked Portland County, this was 2021, Portland city officials to clear the camps in the area to no avail. Then Friday afternoon, facing a flooding emergency, Multnomah County Sheriff deputies escorted Multnomah County technicians to the pump house while tow t- trucks started removing abandoned cars and debris. This. And it says as soon as they got down there with their trucks and equipment and servicemen to look at the pump, there were six gunshots mm-hmm. coming from homeless encampments that all of us heard. It was the second time they said that gunshots were fired around pump technicians. KGW reached out to Portland city officials for a response. A spokesperson said the camp was outside the city's jurisdiction and the city had no authority to address it. Well, that's what I'm saying. A lot of the city um, agencies do not want to take responsibility for their public land. They don't want to be landlords, basically. And yet they leave their properties available for campsites. And then it's destroyed, and then it costs millions of dollars to repair everything. You've got your example, I think, is a great example of ordinary people trying to do their job being threatened with violence um, for trying to do their job to protect other people's property. And the city isn't protecting their own officials who are trying to do their job. I've talked to park rangers. They've they've been assaulted. the and they're cent- unarmed. Yeah, they're unarmed. Oh, yeah, Central City Concern, all uh, rapid response, all of their workers that are out here cleaning up these camps um, are, are threatened 
assaulted regularly. It is so unfair. I just don't understand why the homeless are allowed to get away with so many atrocities and breaking the law. Um, and there's no repercussions. Nobody, there's no consequences. There's no consequences. Nobody's there to protect the innocent. Well, you, you, you all probably know, this was in the Oregonian April 6, 2021, um, by Maxine Bernstein, and, and she, did a, she did do a piece about how the, do you guys remember this, the Portland City, some of the commissioners, Carmen Rubio, Mingus Maps, and Dan Ryan wanted to spend $1.4 million in park levy money to hire 24 seasonal rangers through December, and they wanted to create a, I'm quoting from the article, ranger engagement team to respond the day after a shooting in or near a park to support visitors. And their plan did not include any money for the police bureau to bring back a uniform patrol team without a community oversight, forcing on enforcing gun laws. I mean, again, we're so obsessed with gun control, but yet we're not funding any enforcement of gun laws as the mayor and a group of community leaders. It says a mayor, the mayor did want that. And, um, you know, Rubio, and, and this is disappointing for Mingus Maps, who I think is, you know, I think most of us elected him thinking he was going to be a real kind of rational voice on city council. I think he, I think he is the most rational person on city council. But unfortunately, he supported this, this ranger levy money. And um, at that time, and this was back in 2021, it's only gotten worse, 266 shootings throughout the city. And that was just back at that time. Guns, had ca guns caused 18 of the city's 25 homicides since January 1st. At that rate, Portland would finish the year with record homicides. And of course we did. We did finish it. Yes. And we're on, we're on pace to break it again. That's right. And we're sending young rangers. These are uh, park rangers that are mainly young people. They're unarmed. And they're patrolling our parks unarmed and being assaulted and being assaulted and and screamed at and threatened yeah they didn't even consult the rangers this article says it says in fact the headline is longtime portland park ranger we are not the police of the parks period and we're not going to be period if you when 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 uh mayor wheeler came into office i think we had 19 murders or 16 murders in the city of portland four years five years later we're at 92, 93, almost five times the amount of murders. And this is for an administration that said they were going to prioritize homeless. That I voted for Mayor Wheeler twice. I did too. On this issue. Although and we didn't have much of a choice with Sarah Yannarone no. declaring herself I am Antifa and running against him in the last election. That's the only reason why I got my vote the second time. I would have voted for anybody else except for an Antifa supporter. Um, but I, I, I guess... I know a lot of people who voted for her just because they wanted to vote for anybody other than Wheeler and they didn't know who she was. They hadn't done their research. And I think that's part of why the election was so close. It was close. Very close. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think by any metric that you look at, the, our government has, has failed us and, and let us down our, our, our city is, is less safe. Nobody wants to go downtown. Um, I mean, what are we doing? Why are we electing the same people? You know, people complain, oh, my God, can you imagine how? Well, why are we electing the same people? Well, I, I'm wondering why we can't set, you know, a date to end the homelessness. 
<laughs> why we can't set a time or yeah. or a, a goal of billions of dollars going into this project why we can't set a goal i like a endless. date i like a date you know i like, like a date let's end it then let's, there'd be some accountability right and and that that's what we're asking for i i can bet you that over more than 75% of people in this town would support that and want that i've never even heard of that uh juanita having a date but that would be great have a goal yeah wouldn't that be awesome yeah so todd and juanita how long has has my guess is you wouldn't have picked lens um had it always been this crime ridden and this apocalyptic to live in so how long has lens been living with the level of crime and homelessness that you talked about i've been in the community since 2001 and I can say the last seven, eight, probably the last eight years for sure have just been horrible with homeless. I, Southeast 92nd was just a cesspool. And the only way I was able, at one point, I just was like, what are we going to do? So I took my camera down because I'm a photographer and I walked down 92nd and I took pictures of everything. I took pictures of uh, the school bus dropping young children off on Southeast Flavelle and high schoolers walking by uh, sex trafficking trailers full of prostitutes. How do, you, how do you know they were full of prostitutes? Because I know because they were approaching the young women coming off the school bus you saw this happen? I saw it happen. I've got video. I've got photos of it. Did you send this to the I sent the it city? to all of the news agencies. I gave them access to everything. I gave them access to all the photos. I will say, by bringing attention to that, Southeast 92nd has become a much better. I did go around last night with my grandson, and I helped, he helped me count how many encampments and tents and we came up with 36 within uh, probably a four-block area. So people actually used your footage and reported on that, the yes. people you sent it to? Yes. Oh, that's impressive. And it was the only way I could gain attention to what was going on. And I think by staying quiet, it's almost like you have to raise a flag, not only raise a flag, but you have to jump up and down, and then you have to start waving your hands and then you have to start screaming. There is something going on in our neighborhood. Can you please do something about it? What, what would you two say to people who are listening right now who um, might be in that silent majority that Renee Gonzalez refers to, who want to, don't, who want to change the city, but they're afraid of speaking out, they're afraid of being firebombed and targeted in the way Todd has been. They're afraid of being targeted in the way that the Lentz Livability Neighborhood Association has generally been targeted, um, like on social media. They're afraid of being doxxed. They're like the people that moved out of Lentz. They're, they're afraid of all that. They're afraid of being called a racist um, or, or a quote-unquote privileged white person. What, 
what would you say to inspire them to become vocal as you two have been? I, I really, I really wish that we could somehow come together because the more people that are together, the more power we would have. So I, I want to, I want to know how, or turn the question back to you is how can we, how can we get everybody together? How can we get everybody in one place as one voice so that we are, we've got the power back because right now for as individuals, we have no power. How can we bring all these voices to one place? That's my question because that's what I think it's going to take um, to really, you know. I have a lot of uh, elderly people. They don't know how to get the message out and report. And so when I hear about it, I'm able to go to them and explain to them these are the numbers. I've actually canvassed my entire uh, neighborhood around me with the reporting numbers. Uh, so they can call the city and let them know this is going on. And it's not just from me, but it's from everyone. But I've told the city, listen, I'm trying to, to represent at least 20 households here. And if you want, I can have each household call you if that's going to get a response. But um, what's happening is I think the city must be getting overran by calls, and it's just not enough staff. To, to respond so we have I, the all this way, money it seems bizarre that they can't hire I, more people i don't know but what i'm saying is i think the avenue of meeting at the lentz neighborhood livability association um whatever association that you feel comfortable attending um is a forum that they should go to and at least hear what's happening and if they are uncomfortable have someone there at that association take note and report it for them. Um, also, you know, if they can uh, go to Coffee with Cops where they can meet uh, the cops in the neighborhood and talk to them about what's going on, um, I, I'm at a loss otherwise because it's really hard to have a venue where you can just be open and honest without being accused of being a hater. And, and we are not haters. I am not a hater. I want to make that clear. I, I really care about my community, and I care about my neighbors, and I care about the uh, elderly folk, that, that they have no voice. So, and the children. Children are important. That's our future. Yeah, again, my neighborhood is 95% non-white. And I went around. I've got an apartment complex, Section 8 apartment complex, maybe 25 to 30 units. And before this meeting, I think, I can't remember which meeting it was, I went around to hand out flyers and knock on all my neighbors' doors, including the apartment's doors. And the reception to me and what, and what I was talking about and trying to get them to go to this meeting was extremely warm. Uh, we all feel the same fear. Um, we just don't talk. Um, and, and that's one of the problems. We need to, we need to talk because I think we have a lot more in common, a lot more shared values and goals, and uh, whether it be we're scared to talk because you know there's people out that we don't want them seeing that we're communicating, we live in fear, um, and we we need to talk and we need to stand up and we need to, you know, say what we believe. Yeah, there was a um, I don't know. Have either of you seen this documentary yet? There was a there was a, it's a 
there's some problems with it. I mean, one of them is probably the narrator who's um, underwhelming and speaks in a monotone voice and is in the documentary a little too much. Um, that's just my opinion. But I, I think a lot of people haven't watched it because it's it was done by somebody who's perceived as, as being, um, and maybe is, sort of a more right-wing organization. But um, Peter Bogosian, who resigned from Portland State, is in it. And Nancy Rommelman, who was a journalist here in Portland, um, and was her husband had some coffee shops called Ristretto Roasters, and she was sort of run out of town because she made some politically incorrect comments about um, the Me Too movement by just talking about, you know, it was, it was very innocuous stuff. It was stuff like Aziz Ansari is maybe not the equivalent of Harvey Weinstein. And anyway, her, her, their business was completely destroyed. And she now lives in New York City, but she was in the documentary because she obviously, you know, she's lived here. She's run a, she and her husband ran a business here. She obviously knows a fair amount about Portland. And also a, a woman named Susan Griffin who lives in Section 8 housing, who lives here downtown, who's been on this show, was in it. And um, she lived through the riots of 2020. And it, they, it completely, I mean, she will say, and she said on the show, it ruined her life. I mean, it, it, it exacerbated her PTSD. This is, I mean, this is a woman who, who has self-described mental illness, um, addiction issues, um, issue disability and has not worked in years and she has never not been able to house herself because she's always maintained a level of functionality and she was in an SRO for a while now she's in section 8 housing and she, and she was able to figure that out and get and get into section 8 housing but um, you know she she was absolutely terrorized by all these riots and she talks about it in this documentary but what when you say Todd that you're you'll put the question back to me about what people should do. I mean, in that documentary, both Peter Bogosian and Nancy Rommelman say, talk to your, you can speak out. You don't have to have a podcast like this. You don't have to be on the podcast. You can just go talk to your neighbors right. like Juanita does. Yeah. You can pass out flyers like Todd does. You can just speak candidly to people in your backyard who come over for a drink or, or a hot dog or something about, hey, you know, I've noticed some stuff going on that I don't really care for and I'm worried about myself and my family and what can we do to protect ourselves? You can run for your neighborhood board. It's a grassroots like effort, I think. It's it's exactly what you're saying. It's talking to your neighbors and some people are uncomfortable with that, you know. I've been in community engagement, so I'm a little bit more, uh, you know, outgoing about that. So... I think that's why it falls on me to speak for them. They're, they don't know how uh, to report. They don't know where to go. Um, so it's a, it's a venue for me to be able to speak to my neighbors, get to know them. I, I text them if something's weird going on with the, with the property. I say, hey, there's somebody over there. You know, We stay connected. And I think that's a, the grassroots effort is a real big deal. Also, there's a lot going on on YouTube. Uh, that really brings to light what's happening in, in certain areas, not just Lentz, but in all areas. And I think that's a good venue for really getting uh, the message out of, as to what's happening. If you go in and you search, like any area, like Lentz, you'll pull up a bunch of uh, different videos, one of which was uh, 
the European, I think, was one of them. Mm. And he took uh, the the maps and just showed the different area of Valence. And it was just, it was embarrassing, really, uh, to see what our community looked like just from somebody that lives across the you know, the pond yeah. <laughs> looking at our particular neighborhood. Yeah, I, I feel like Juanita in a lot of ways, I'm here representing my neighborhood because my neighborhood, uh, they either don't speak English, they've got three jobs, they're raising a family. They don't have time to deal with this. Exactly. I'm single. Yeah, they're consumer trying to survive. Yes. And, and I feel like I'm really here representing them, and I wish that they could be here um, so you could see their faces, hear their voices. Um, it's not just me. It's not just Juanita. It's all of us. Uh, Juanita is retired. I have time. I'm not married. I don't have kids. So I've got time to do this. But it's all of us, and it's, it's really, really, really sad. I did want to say, too, on our street, we are very diverse. We have lots of nationalities on our street. And I think the number one thing that brought us together was food. And so uh, I had like a, you know, the annual, we haven't had done it for two years because of COVID, but, you know, just getting everybody out in the street to talk to one another, have a meal, share a meal and talk about security and get to know one another. It's, it's really fun to, to actually see the diverse, uh, neighborhoods in our inlets absolutely absolutely i mean um i've got uh, my neighbor next door is white and i don't have any other white neighbors and we all get along none of us are the problem uh you know people coming into our communities that's right i mean we all support each other i mean we've got each other's backs i mean we know each other it's a great thing um, but the city is trying to squash us, and, 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 and they don't want my neighborhood to succeed. They don't want the people in my neighborhood to, to prosper, um, to be educated. I mean, it's so sad. There's a, there's a bridge. Yeah, I mean, if the kids are coming off the school bus and getting recruited into sex trafficking operations. Yep, yep. There's a, there's a uh, I didn't know who it was. There's a 80-year-old uh, black, black guy who was the a bus driver. And I'm looking out my office window. This was last summer. And this bus guy stopped in the middle of my, my street here. And he got out, and he was assaulted by some homeless people. And I'm like, God, oh, Jesus. And he got back in his truck, so, I mean, the, the, the bus. I'm like, thank God. So that bus came by my street the next day, and I got out, and I stopped him and said, hey, what happened the other day? And he told me he's a 79, 79-year-old 79 uh, uh, bus driver taking around homeless kids to school so they feel normal. And these homeless people had their bicycle on the road, and the bus driver was like, hey, could you move that? I don't want to run over it. And they were giving him all sorts of lip. They started talking about his daughter. So he got out of the, cow, he, out of the uh, bus. He got assaulted, and he said, I'm retiring at the end of this month. I'm done with this. He's just trying to do good. You know? but, he, but he can't due to the circumstances going on in the neighborhood. Last Monday, I went to the bank. The ATM outside was not working, so I went through the drive-thru, and there's a person sitting right by the ATM. And I pointed at the ATM, and he just sat there with his legs stretched out where I couldn't get by. And I pointed at him again at the ATM. He would not move, so I 
I started the car to drive by because I couldn't go backward, and I only way I could go was forward. And um, right, they've got those narrow little um, yeah concrete barriers and around he, you and those ATM lines. He moved his feet then, but um, you know it's 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 not just in our communities. They're allowing people to loiter and stay, and there's no police presence to deal with it. It, it's it's people coming into our communities that don't live there. And so the families and the children don't have any option. One family, the, the young woman, she's a young mother, um, she said, I can't even allow my children out in the yard. She said, I can't allow them into the yard because there's needles that get thrown over the, the fence. Into glass, their yard. And, into their yard. And... Um, you know, I can give you example, example, example of this kind of stuff. And it's people coming into our communities that are not respecting our communities. They want us to respect them, but they've been unrespectful to us uh, as neighbors. They have no respect for us at all. You know, um, when I interviewed T.J. Browning from uh, Laurelhurst yesterday, she said... Um, and, and Laurel Hurst is dealing with this homelessness crisis on a large scale as well. And that's a more affluent, I think, a whiter neighborhood. Um, so the demographics are different, um, but they're struggling with she, – she described a lot of the same kind of things that you all are, interestingly. So I think it's important for all the listeners to know, especially those who don't live in Portland, that, that this is a citywide issue, and it doesn't – this homelessness crisis – and this lawlessness that's going on, it doesn't respect, it's, it's not like it's only going on in poor neighborhoods, but I do think it's important to understand that the city of Portland and its population, including, I, I think, again, I think most of us self-select and want to live here because we, we want to do things like help people who have been historically oppressed or discriminated against, and, and it, that would include, like, poor people, and it would include minorities, and those are the people we claim to care most about. Generally, most of us in the city of Portland, certainly the city and the city's officials. And Lentz is filled with poor and minority people. That don't have a voice because a lot they're of They're just them, trying to survive. Yeah, they're just trying to survive. They don't n- know how to navigate the system. And and honestly, I think that's why it's an easy dump. Well, they don't, they don't have time. They, they, like I said, most of my Jews have jo- neighbors of two or three jobs, and they've got families, and they don't have time to turn the TV on. You know, I mean, they are constantly busy, and they work six, seven days a week. You know, I don't. Um, I was, I've, I've never worked two or three jobs when I was, you know, where I am now, middle aged. I can't imagine supporting family doing that. But I, you know, is this. When I was younger, I certainly did, um, at least three at one point. And I I don't, although at that time I was younger and I didn't have the kind of responsibilities that I have now, and I can't imagine what it would be like to be one of those people who's working two or three jobs and trying to support a family and trying to raise a family in this neighborhood and walking past um, people like Barbie who came to your meeting and said, this is my way of life, and I, I... I'm going to continue it, and um, and and watching people like Barbie be handed money by this, by the city, by um, be handed food, 
and they're going to their second or third job just to try to pay for food. I'm not really down. I don't know what that would be like. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to sound like a, a downer about what they're doing, but I think it is questionable that people uh, just assume that they can stay on public land and, and live their life and find ways to, to pay for it uh, through our tax well because they can because they can i mean because they can't they assume that because and they, they want can. us to think that's okay and um i'm trying to see the rationality behind that and uh, i don't know it's just it just seems uh, like i think i think it, it was helpful when you all talked about the bybee lakes hope center because um one of the criticisms that we've heard is that um, people don't want to go to shelters because they're dirty, because there are um, they're bad places to be, so they'd rather be in a tent. It's safer in a tent, et cetera. And what I'm hearing from you all is that places like Bybee Lakes Hope Center uh, um, is is does not fit that description. Is no. a clean, it's a nice place. It's a beautiful facility where people can go and a caring and be facility. safe. Absolutely. And it does screen. And so I would also say to those critics who argue, well, the homeless aren't safe at shelters. Well, that's why we need screening, though, right? I mean, Bybee Lakes is safe because they screen. They they need to understand what the the issues are with with every person's different. You know, it could be just a mental illness. Uh, it could be that they're sad and they've lost a family member. It could be they've lost a job and they're despondent. Um, there's lots of issues that cause people to go to the streets, you know, and we don't want to turn a blind eye to that. And I just think it's unfair. I keep saying unfair because it is to see people living like that. And uh, a lot of times I see children living in, and that's just completely unacceptable. A lot of times you see children in tents. I do see children. I do. So when Kevin was on, when Kevin Dahlgren um, from the city of Gresham was on and from We Heart Portland, and, and he works with Andrea, Andrea Suarez at We Heart Seattle in homelessness issues, he said he's also seen kids, and he said it's not in his experience, and he's obviously experienced because he goes around and, and talks to these people, um, it's not mama working five jobs. He says we actually do an, a pretty good job of housing single mothers who are who are functional and assisting them. But he said um, it's it's usually parents who are addicts who exactly. don't want to get treatment, and and the children suffer. And he said CPS doesn't respond. They don't. So have you called CPS? I've called I've called the city and reported it, and they've asked. You know, did I see a child? Yes, I did. And I gave a description of the child and what the area where they are. And after that, there's not anything really I can do. You know, I mean, I can't, we can't physically go in and remove the child. But, you know, it's, with everything. I don't know that I'd be able to sleep if I saw that. Just seeing Kevin's pictures alone. I guess that's why I'm willing to speak out. It's, it's, It's come to a point where I can't. I cannot not speak out. It's just, it's, it's something's got to happen here. Something's got to be done about this situation. We need a deadline to end this homelessness. We need to come together. We need to forget about our biases and 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 just start working together to end it. It's it's not fair. 
TJ Browning from Laurelhurst said that a national reporter contacted her and was going to do a story on homelessness and use Laurelhurst as a setting for the story on homelessness. And she, she wouldn't say who the national reporter was, but she was working with this person for a while. And I guess she said, eventually the reporter called her and said, I'm actually not going to do this story because it's not about homelessness. It's about the politics of Portland. And nobody's interested in the politics of Portland. Everybody already knows Portland is insane and full of lunacy and is not representative of the, the nation, is not representative of the United States, and nobody wants to read a story, another story about how crazy Portland is. So I'm not going to do the story. And it's not representative of the majority of Oregon. You can go outside of, of Portland, and, and I can guarantee you that there is more support in ending this with, with communities than to... Well, yeah, Keep I mean, look at what Kevin is it. doing in the city of Gresham. Even just cr- walk five feet over county Look at lines. Salem. It's it's uh, systemic. And uh, I've driven through Seattle. Seattle's gotten a little better from what I could see from the freeway. I haven't been into the cities. But as soon I, I drove from the Canadian border the other day, and as soon as I got to Seattle, it was, boom, homelessness. Uh, between that and and Vancouver, clear. As soon as I crossed that bridge over into Portland, it was homelessness everywhere, filth everywhere. It's shocking, and I don't. It I is think, shocking, and I think people have just accepted it. And I'm just not willing to accept <clears throat> that this is how people should live, and that we should accept that this is how we should run our city. It's not fair. And the future of the city is is now. I mean, our children are watching us. And I'm a, a mother, a grandmother, and I want to be known for standing up for our families and our communities. And that's why I'm doing this today. What do you think of um, the argument that I, and I know city, I, I don't know, I haven't heard this articulated by city officials in Portland, but I know um, the Gavin Newsom in, in California and a lot of the city officials in, in California are making the argument that, hey, we can't do anything about this homelessness issue um, because a lot of these people don't want services and we can't force them into services because we don't want to tangle with the ACLU and people who think we're taking their liberties away. So um, there's nothing we can do. Our hands are tied. These, these people don't want to go into treatment. And until they want to go into treatment or until they want to get mental health care, we can't provide it to them. I say quit being afraid and deal with the situation. Stand up for what the majority of your citizens would like to see in the city and our communities. Do what we vote you in to do. And that's your job to listen to the citizens, and and that's why you're there. You're voted in to listen and and represent your community and quit making excuses. Do your job. Listen to the communities. Reach out to people. Don't be afraid to listen. It might be painful for a little while, but we have to have some sort of end to this process, and I just don't see it right now. Everybody's like, oh, just throw more money at it. No, 
We need to do our jobs and do what the citizens are asking us to do. Our taxes are going toward it, so do your job. I've called the mayor's office probably three dozen times in the last four or five years, and I've only talked to a human a couple times. I think it was the second time I called. The gal that answered the phone said to me, this is the new normal. Get used to it. I said, excuse me? I said, I will never get used to this, and this is not normal, and it never will be. And she meant the climate of the city of Portland? The homelessness. I was complaining about the homeless outside my house, and she said, this is the new normal. Get used to it. This was the gal that answered the phone for the mayor's office. I was told, um, what are you, afraid of homelessness? From the, it's this is a what negative we're tone. This is what we're getting. Well, and if they had experienced what you all have experienced, <laughs> they might be afraid. I mean, if they were, if they, their house was about to be firebombed. They've got a bull in their shop. They've had a rifle pointed at their head twice. These have all happened. I've been chased by a... You've had a rifle pointed at your head twice? Twice. Same, just like my neighbors have. Your neighbors have too? Well, this guy, this guy was attacking this black man. I think my neighbor said because he was black. I was over at my neighbor's house, and they were, they were whatever with this guy. And had a rifle out, and we were in the line, and the rifle was pointed at my and my neighbor's heads, along with the black man's head that they were targeting. This gentleman that I'm talking about that had the rifle, he was moved about three months ago. He was moved three blocks away. He's still there. Every time I drive by, uh, I don't want to say the street, his truck is there. So he's now terrorizing the people that live in that neighborhood, which is three blocks from, my, from, from where I live. And he's, he's just parked in a different neighborhood. Yep. Three blocks away. We had a, a, a huge metal shop, shop um, uh, right on the MPU. And just about two blocks from the... What is the MPU, for those who don't know? It's a multi-use path. Uh, that it, runs along I-205 for about 26 miles. It's a beautiful path that you have people riding their bikes. Spring water. Yeah, it was, it was built, made, built for... Walkers, runners, bicycle people, and kids to get to school, uh, parents to get to bus stops safely so they don't have to go on 92nd. And it's been absolutely taken over uh, by these people. The Spring Rider Trail is unsafe. Maybe from Gresham, it's not. but from Yeah, where and, Kevin's cleaning yeah, it up. But uh, from Gresham to anywhere in Portland, it is not safe. And uh, if they had a metal shop. They actually were pulling the cars in, and completely dismantling them all hours of the night, clear until the early morning hours. You'd start with a car, you'd wake up, and there would be no car. And it was, I, I came back because my son's a musician. I was like in a late night performance, and I came back about 1 o'clock in the morning. It looked like about 21 people. It looked like ants on an anthill taking those cars apart. We finally were able to get them to put boulders there so that that they couldn't do that any longer. Oh, yeah. Okay. So there and there's been a lot of controversy over those there boulders. There has, but that has really helped certain areas of property that P dot O dot the city doesn't want to deal with. And they How did you finally get them to act and put boulders there? Well, we just kept calling. I mean, we kept reporting. We kept I mean, it was constant. Constant. So you have to be, I mean, you guys were right. I mean, you, you have to have, a, you have to really dedicate time and energy to get any response whatsoever. Yeah. 
And most people just don't have the time and energy to do that. I had my grandson yesterday staying with me, and I said, I'm sorry, I've got to report to abandoned vehicle. It took me, it shouldn't have taken me this long, but I had to go over there. I had to get the photo of the cars. I had to try and find the VIN number. I had to find out what kind of car it was because they had tore everything off. I mean, these are this is information that they want from you before they'll do anything. So I went over, took pictures, uh, came back, found it on the website because I have PDX Reporter on my phone, but it, it says that that's changed and you need to go to another site. I went to the site. It said the website's no longer available or whatever, so I went to the city site. And it took me two hours to report two abandoned vehicles um, I don't think people have the time to do that, you know, and it's it's putting all the pressure on the community to get response. It's on us. It's on us to defend ourselves. It's on us to report it. It's on us to give them all the information, and then they'll, whatever they do, I don't know whatever they do with it. I don't know if they look at that chart daily or if they have people that are responding because we're never. You're not seeing, you're certainly not seeing or hearing from people who are saying that they're responding. Correct. I had um, <clears throat> trailers outside of my house for about a year, and for five months they had they were allowed to have generators going. For two of the the first two months, these this generator was so loud that my pillow and bed were, would vibrate, vibrate the pillows until they got that generator moving and gave them a quieter one. But for five months they were allowed to have generators going twenty four seven. So the city gave them a quieter generator? Somebody somebody made them get rid of that one, and they got a, a quieter one. But they were still allowed to have a generator going right outside my bedroom, right outside my property, 24 hours a day, when it would run out, boom, 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 and they'd fill it up with gas, and it would be going again. But for two months, my pillow would vibrate, and my bed would vibrate because this thing was so loud and powerful. Yeah. So, so what, what haven't we covered? What else do you want people to know about... Lance, about the L in LA. Well, the, the rat issue, I've got a, my, my 2012 F-150 pickup truck has been sitting uh, in front of my house since late February because the wires were eaten by the rats. And it's going to cost me about $5,000 to fix. So I've got a, a, a truck that's sitting on my driveway that is unusable, won't start because the rats ate the wires. And the rats are attracted to the encampments. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's all the food waste that you all talked about. And the, uh, I, I just would like to point out that I think um, the Lentz Neighborhood Livability Association, um, Dave and Shar have really been a spearhead to bring light to what's going on in the area. But also be a, a, a voice from the community to city council, to city leaders, uh, about really what's happening and being truthful about it. And then giving also a voice for people to come in and talk to us and let us ask questions and not just do a presentation and then leave, but give us an opportunity to ask questions. Um, you know, yeah, sometimes it gets heated, but, you know, that happens in all communities. And um, I think for the most part, it's a positive place to be able to share and, and to get answers. And if you don't get answers, then... Maybe that's where the negativity comes in because Dave and Shar are really good about going to city council and um, sharing what's happening uh, in the community. 
So uh, I just would like to say it's been a great uh, forum for me to be able to come and and bring my neighbors to those that can come and be able to share and you know other than hearing it from me, hearing it from somebody else and directly from city leaders. And I think they're doing a great job. I mean, they go out every I'm almost every week that I know of. We went out and. Personally, I picked up 2,500 pounds of garbage. How do you know it was that much? Because Solve, who... Oh, uh, my gosh. They have a dumpster, and uh, we had probably 15 people that showed up. It's called Solve? Yes. And they helped uh, helped us gather the uh, equipment, and it, this was only, what, a two- or three-block area that we picked up, and we had 2,500 pounds of garbage. If, if the, the people that are listening need any kind of contact information, I'm not sure exactly what the webpage is, but the LNLA webpage has a page dedicated to phone numbers, contacts. It is excellent. It's extensive. And if you're looking for, you know, who to call for which, what matter, go to that website and you'll probably find the phone number you're looking for. They're also on Facebook. And you all are, um, again, it's a it's an organization that can accept donations, and you can the meetings are open to the public. You can come to the meetings. You can um, join in on these uh, forums like Cof- Coffee with Cops. You can listen to the speakers, these incredible speakers that they're getting at these meetings. If you want to know what's going on in the city, go to some of these meetings. Exactly. I mean, journalists go to the meetings, right? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, they, they've... If they find out there's an issue in the city, they go directly to that agency and invite uh, someone to represent the agency to come in and maybe talk to the to uh, the neighbors about it and the people in the community. It's been a great forum uh, for me personally. I agree, and a lot of a lot of you know different people in the city actually go to David and Shar for information. You know, it's 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 pretty special. Oh, you mean like city officials? Or city officials or like director of, you know, whatever, shelter, what have you. They will call David and Char to look for who to contact for whatever they're looking for. They also do community outreach events where they help people that uh, are in need in oh, the yeah. community. And uh, I know we've given out boxes of food at, at holiday times uh, to needy families worked with Kelly Elementary to find out um, the things that people are in need of, the actual shelter down the street, Um, you know, being able to find out how we can help these individuals get off the street and what programs are locally there. And if we can't find locally, maybe there's another program that would fit their needs. So Dave and Shar Potts are, they're great people about a great resource to uh, look to and they would be a good person for for you to have on your podcast yeah i'd love to have them yeah they they take no money themselves no salary no money and the majority of the money that they do raise goes to homeless and or help people that can't afford them themselves to fix up their home so it's livable and safe and sanitary that's where their money goes that they raise they do a lot of uh they do i haven't um gone with them but they do a lot of yard cleanups for for elderly or people that are sick or 
disabled. Disabled. It's a great organization. Well, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate you talking here today and sharing what's going on in Lens and, and opening up all of our eyes about what's going on in your neighborhood and your community and about the good work that the LNLA is doing that I don't think a lot of people know about. Yeah, we want to be part of the solution, not uh, a negative approach. We're directly affected, and I know Todd is, and, and I'd like to see him get some relief. Well, and you have a shelter in your neighborhood even, right? And you you just said the LNLA assists that shelter and, and helps that shelter out. And so it's not like you're NIMBY people or people who want nothing to do with, with homeless people. You're not asking that the shelter be removed. Um, that's not what's going on here. No, and I, I would like to see, and I've, I've reached out personally to a lot of people on the street and offered them help and sincerely talked to them and just said, you know, you don't need to live like this, and can I help you? Is there anything I can do for you? I mean, we're reaching out. I'm just a small drop in the bucket to people that are reaching out to these individuals in our neighborhood. We just feel like if you're going to be a part of our community, be a part of the community and be a positive impact, not a negative. So have you personally ever received um, feedback on that or has somebody actually said, yes, I do want services? Who can you connect connect me with? Uh, no, they all refuse service, every single one of them. And in fact, one girl, uh, and I know you're closing, but one girl uh, did come up to my driveway and uh i saw her kind of wandering and i went out and i could tell she was altered she was drugged and she was young she was no more than 22 23 and i said can i help you and she goes i need an ambulance and i said i'm gonna get it sit down here and i can't you know what can i do for you Tried to talk to her before the ambulance arrived. Well, she turned around, and I walked down with her because she would not stay at the house. And when I canceled the ambulance, uh, the, amb the, the police came, and I begged him. I said, please go down into this camp and look for this young woman. I said, she's a young woman and is probably being sex trafficked, and I need for you to go find her. And he did. He went down to find her. She refused services. But she was, in, in one way, begging for help. But our hands are tied. Until they're ready to get help, we have to stand back and watch it happen. Well, and I think anybody who has a relative, particularly mothers, um, Terry Anderson was in here, and her son, she was on the show, and her son died homeless of a drug overdose um, on Burnside. And she says, you know, I wish somebody would have violated his quote-unquote civil liberties. Yes, absolutely. A any mother will say, I mean, I I'm the, was the, my dad's dead now, but I'm the daughter of somebody who's homeless. I wish that as well. I'm the sister of somebody who's homeless and who I think is still alive. And I wish, you know, and she herself tell, says I've only been clean when I've been in jail. Exactly. So there's no there's no accountability going on here. It's just billions, the B, yeah, flowing into this issue. There has to be 
some accountability to allowing people to live like this. It's unfair. <clears throat> a friend of mine I went to high school with, great guy. Uh, he's in federal prison right now. Uh, his parents are good friends with my parents, and his parents, for the first time, are sleeping at night, knowing that their son is I know. safe in jail. Yeah, that was the only time my parents slept as well, was when my sister was incarcerated. Crazy. You know, if, if you talk to a lot of these former addicts that have recovered and actually running some of these centers, they will tell you going to jail is the only thing that saved their lives. Yeah, I know, I know. It's really tricky because I know we want, and I, I absolutely understand this, I know we've decriminalized drugs, and I know we want to to separate incarceration from um, addiction, and we want to recognize addiction as a medicalized issue, and I know it's complex and tricky, and I totally agree it's a it's a disease. It's a, it is a medicalized issue. But one thing that, um, you know, um, a public defender who's been in here has talked about is we don't have drug court anymore because we've decriminalized drugs. And so we've, we've taken the incentives away to get, to get off of drugs. And if you're addicted and everything in your body and your brain is telling you not to get off, then why would you, what incentive do you, do you, what, what incentive is there? Where's the motivation really? The decriminalization of, of that <clears throat> is, is really affected our neighborhood. It's, it's, oh, you've noticed a difference. Oh, it's, oh yeah. it's, it is rampant. I mean, yesterday in counting the, the uh, homeless camps with my grandson, a gentleman was shooting up right on the corner of, of where a church is. And you wouldn't have, you, you didn't see that as often prior to the decriminalization Absolutely bill. Absolutely not. No. And, and the amount of drugs that are coming off the streets. I mean, we're hearing it being ran every night. I mean, I hear it being ran on the MPU every night. There's drug dealing, drug dealing, and it's there's a cul-de-sac, a Mount Scott, uh, right at the Flavel Max station. It was completely overtaken with drug dealing and sex trafficking. It has since uh, been cleaned up a little bit, but there was still. I drove down it yesterday. There's still drug dealing going on. And it, it's it's not real visible from the platform or from Southeast 92nd, so that's what they're utilizing to deal their drugs. But it's 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 really made a huge difference in our neighborhood. A, a month after uh, D.A. Schmidt said that he was no longer going to be prosecuting and he was going to enforce, or not enforce, but do the decriminalizing of, of Measure 110, I had two couples come in a car from Virginia and they, they got out, they, they set up their tent across from my house. I said, please don't do that. This is a really dangerous area. Don't do it here. They were setting out, they were outside for a month smoking pot in their lounge chairs, getting sunshine, loving life. A month after they got here, you saw that they had put a, a tarp up on, on their area, and they were no longer out. About three weeks after that, they had spray paint on their tent, no drugs here. And about three weeks after that, they got in their car and they went back to Virginia. Oh, that's interesting. How unsafe, that's wow. how unsafe the MUP is. They came here thinking, oh, this is a great life. Oregon, it's, they decriminalize everything. We can do whatever we want. Uh, we'll get free food stamps. We'll get money for whatever. We can steal if we don't, you know, whatever. They were gone less than three months after they arrived from Virginia. Two couples. Two couples came here. Four people. 
and they left three and months. We hear a lot of that. Uh, a lot of the other uh, cities that say, well, go to Portland. They'll give you everything that you want. They don't really care, and that's the truth. They yeah, have that's come what from the public all over defender the, told us, too. They have come from all over the country into Portland, and uh, a lot of the drugs, wherever the drugs are, that's where they're going. It's a culture. It's a culture. Until we fix that culture and say, no, this is not acceptable here, it will remain here. Until we start holding these NGOs and these other nonprofits accountable, it's, it's, it's never going to be fixed. Thanks again for coming in. Both of you, I really appreciate your Thanks for the voice. forum. Yeah. Thank you, Kristen.